Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for May 7th, 2020, the Vote by Mail edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider and my attic, my closet in Washington, D.C., joining me from his perch in Manhattan, New York City, is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. That's the first time you've uh, identified yourself by that moniker. I know. I, I know. I did, monic- I did moniker myself as a uh, business insider because I am, as we talked about last week, I'm writing a newsletter with Henry Blodgett for Business Insider. Read.bi slash plots to subscribe. It's pretty fun. And then also joining from her home in New Haven, Connecticut, from the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello. I am indeed enjoying your newsletter. Uh, how are you guys doing? Are you, are you guys okay? It's so nice out today. Yes, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. Know, really. I don't know. You, know. you never know. You never know. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on today's, Nothing changes, and yet you never know. On today's GabFest, is there even a hint of a plan for quashing this pandemic in the United States? Then, will the 2020 election be a fiasco? Emily has just written an alarming story about how vote-by-mail and other pandemic voting remedies could be problematic, could fail, could be disastrous. And then we'll be joined by Gene Sperling, a former top economic official in the Clinton and Obama White Houses. He has a new book, Economic Dignity. He's going to talk about pandemic economics and how we can create an economy that is more fair and more dignified for all of us. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. The United States' response to the pandemic is a mess. It's overseen by a federal government that is proving itself incompetent corrupt, confused, and delusional. There's been a week of chaos, a refusal to participate in an international vaccine conference. The pandemic task force was going to be disbanded. Then it was not going to be disbanded. Then it was barred from testifying before Congress. There were various death estimates that came from the administration that were wildly diverse and none particularly trustworthy, including one which, if you took it to its logical conclusion, would conclude that deaths from the pandemic would go below zero in June. Meanwhile, the White House is urging governors to reopen states faster, even though caseloads are growing and no state has met the standard laid out by Johns Hopkins for what it would take to start reopening. Plus, we have story after story coming out about federal incompetence with FEMA confiscating PPE ordered by states, a mind-blowingly incompetent team of millennial pals of Jared Kushner botching up supply chain for PPE 
And then you have the secretary of state spewing conspiracy theories about China manufacturing the virus. It's a been a bad week. I mean, there's Wait, a question. I have something to add from oh, the yeah. breaking news. Sure. There's an AP story this morning that um, a set of detailed documents, and I quote, created by the nation's top disease investigators, meant to give step-by-step advice to local leaders deciding when and how to reopen mass transit, daycare centers and restaurants, and other such features of life, has been shelved by the Trump administration. It was a 17-page report by the CDC called Guidance for Implementing the Opening Up America Again Framework. In other words, guidance for what we have to do next, shelved. And Maybe it'll just, now be off the shelf, maybe, now that that news is broken. And just to piggyback on that, the, it, the White House has its own little document for helping states, but the White House document is... This echoes the entire challenge that they've faced from uh, the end of December when this first started fibrillating on the globe, which is the political response, the inside the White House response or the expert response. The White House has its own little pamphlet, much more vague, much less expert based. The CDC is usually the one that takes the lead on these things, is expert based, is based in in science. And that's the one that's been shelved. So there's a lot of different things that happened this week, some relating to the actual epidemiology of the virus, the spread of it, some relating to the push to reopen, some relating to various details coming out around corruption that I talked about or incompetence. So, John, as best you can tell, what is the Trump administration trying to accomplish? Well, uh, yeah, it's a great question because they're also... What are they? Well, let's just throw some things out on the table and then you guys can order them. I mean, one of the things they're trying to accomplish is find some way to get the economy to begin its period of convalescence. I don't even think we're in a period of convalescence yet. We're in we're still in the the basically on ice. But the problem with that is, of course, that you have The New York Times reporting today that um, more than half of the states that are starting their easing opening measures have their numbers on new cases and um, the percentage of new cases relative to the total number of tests going in the exact wrong direction. Not just the wrong direction based on like what some epidemiologist says, but actually based on the wrong direction based on the White House guidance that we were just noting was the less conservative guidance relative to the CDC. So even relative to the White House guidance, these states are moving in a dangerous direction. So if so, there's this weird political thing about continuing to try to step away from the responsibility as a way to kind of put it all on governors. Um, the White House is also trying to still be a somehow kind of quasi uh, uh, help in backing up some of these states, although it's really withdrawing from that posture as a part of the third thing it's trying to do, which is basically clean up the past and the and the failures of the White House in the past and also distance itself from perhaps the coming awfulness, which is both the current spike, but then also what we're likely to have in the fall uh, and winter, which is either another boom or j- lots of outbreaks anyway um, in something that the experts are now saying uh, could be with us for the next 18 months. Emily, same question to you. What what do you see the Trump administration trying to do here? Uh, deflect responsibility and somehow obscure the reality of what's happened and what is continuing to happen so that Trump gets reelected. 
I don't right. really know how else to interpret it. I guess there's also this part of me that is so confounded by this. Like, in some ways, of course, I this is a huge challenge and a heavy lift. In other ways, it's straightforward. The nation needed needs to mobilize around testing, tracing, figuring out how to responsibly take these baby steps toward reopening in precisely the way that countries that have contained or um, the new term is boxed in the epidemic have succeeded in doing. We have models from South Korea. We could be walking next to Germany instead of like longingly maybe trying to follow them later, although probably not because we will have botched it. And Trump could have been the roll up your sleeves, corporate America knows how to get things done president that he kind of positioned himself at when he got elected. And his approval ratings would be through the roof. He would have made up for whether he would have actually made up for all the previous errors and sins. That's a different question. But in the public eye, I think he could have really changed his whole image. I mean, can you imagine like the whole media, all of us, we would be saying, well, you know, he really did when when he needed to, he came through. And instead, we've had this just wildly chaotic, narcissistic, completely ineffective response that continues to dog us. And so what it looks to me like we're left with is this patchwork of authority from the governors and these regional compacts are you know, a good idea, but they're going to divide the country up into all these little pieces. We're kind of running these uncontrolled experiments in these states instead of having a depoliticized conversation about what is safe to try to do right now. It's so frustrating. We're going to just be stuck in this long mired sludge potentially of rising infections and death rates and a lot of blaming ourselves and each other divisively instead of having some orderly much less death-ridden process, and it seems so unnecessary. I think it, that's a great way to put it, Emily. I would, I would say there actually might be an even more alarming scenario, which is not rising death rates, but rather just a kind of plateau, which is that, in fact, I think with rising death rates, with something where it's obvious that the disease is not out of control, excuse me, where it's obvious that the disease is out of control, there might be a possibility of galvanizing the public and actually getting real change and some of the really important things around testing and tracing that we need. But with a disease that sort of is just just chugging along, killing a couple thousand people a day, several thousand people a day, gradually working its way through society, we may have the worst of all possible worlds, which is not enough, enough kind of progress. And I use air quotes. I'm using air quotes vigorously there. Enough progress for states to continue to believe that they can open their economy again, open, that's also in air quotes, but not enough to actually create the safety, to create the advance that we know we need to to break this thing finally. And it's a it's an absolute tragedy. And I, I just don't I mean, I think your point about distraction, Emily, is so important that it's it's it is that what the Trump administration primarily is trying to do is to just make everybody not notice the fact that we have monumentally botched this whole situation and instead throw up things like China conspiracies to make it seem like, oh, it's somebody else's fault. It's not our problem. We're doing and we're reopening and hope that people don't notice it. But I I think that people are going to notice. I do think people are going to notice when they don't have a job and their stores aren't open. Go ahead, John. Well, I I think the... I guess a few things. One, uh, 
it, it can be true that China, and it is true, that China was awful <laughs> Uh, repeatedly in the early days of this in January. So sure. it can be true that China yes. was absolutely villainous and yet the administration, and maybe not and yet, but also the administration um, messed up. I mean, imagine if Kennedy, upon hearing that missiles were were chugging along on a boat to their way to Cuba, said, they're being very transparent. There are no missiles going there. I mean, the notion that the administration... And the president in particular, who could have in that January period where China was repeatedly snubbing the CDC when it sought information about the virus, um, the president could have got, you know, gone in front of the cameras and beat the paste out of China. Now, you could make a case that to do so would put China in a corner, make them feel like they'd lost face on the international stage and therefore maybe made the situation worse. But regardless, there's no indication from inside that they were at DEFCON, whatever you're supposed to be at, uh, with respect to China and the information they were getting there. Second, there are three stages, it seems to me. There's the, did you pay attention to all those warnings that came before you'd ever heard the word Wuhan, Mr. President? Second, when you heard things were going terribly, uh, why didn't you do more than just shut down travel from China? Uh, That's the second stage. And then the third is what we're seeing in the real time today from the president and his aides. And so when you see in statements from people like Mike Pence, who said, we can't keep our country closed for the next five years, nobody's proposing keeping it closed for five years. When you have to exaggerate the situation in order to make your case, you have a weak underlying case. And so in real time, those kinds of comments, the excessive effort to um, promote how much progress has been made and how wonderful the president has done are a distraction from the job at hand. And in an economy that's based on confidence in consumers, I don't see how you spin people into spending lots of money if the facts are as brutal as they keep appearing to be. Right. That point about consumer confidence is so key. I am reminded that there, there was this meme, there has been this kind of conservative meme, this conservative notion over the past 10 or so years, like that liberal culture, it's all give everyone a trophy, affirmation culture, everyone's great. And it seems to me that we as a country, and I think conservatives, and I think the Trump administration has become uh, completely enamored of this for ourselves, that we are so good at congratulating ourselves and talking about American exceptionalism. And of course, yes, if we do it differently, it's because we're different and our different way is better. And this is just the lie that we tell ourselves. It's this lie that we've told ourselves is now coming back to literally kill us. It is literally killing us because we're not the greatest country on earth. We don't have the greatest political system. We don't have the greatest healthcare system. We don't apparently have the greatest supply chain and the greatest economy. None of those things, it turns out, are true. And instead, you just need to do some fucking hard work on some things that are complicated and tricky and actually work hard on it. And we are showing ourselves unable or unwilling to do either of those things. And it's very depressing. An interesting thing to watch is um, the Cuomo relative to New York. The New York Times had a piece on Thursday about how basically much of the spread in the United States came through New York. Uh, So in other words, even though Washington State was one of the first places it was hit, the real spread comes through New York. There will be a lot of questioning about how late and slow they were in New York. And yet Cuomo, who has some of those same problems that, that Trump has in terms of sluggish first response, has done all the things subsequent to the outbreak that 
gain leaders popularity and all the things that the president has chosen not to do, even though the checklist for the stuff you're supposed to do comes with the office and is right there every day printed on the uh, Resolute desk. So here's what I've been struggling with, maybe for a long time, but certainly lately, is worrying about how everything we've just described takes our attention away from, like, the difficult real questions about what should happen where. So there are states, as John was describing, where the infection rates are rising and their positive testing rates are not down and their deaths are maybe plateauing, but they're not declining. And previously, there'd been the standard, you have to have 14 days of declining cases before you're reopening. They're blowing right through that. There are also places in the country where when you look at purely the death rate, you don't see excess deaths during this period. They've been not really hit so far. And you can understand if you lived in one of those states, especially a rural part of it, and you felt like COVID was really remote, why you might feel like you'd like to be able to go to some more stores or do some more things. And maybe that's like an experiment that those states should be able to try. And maybe they could even lead the way for showing what small steps are safe. And maybe because we've all, or at least hopefully all, have accustomed ourselves to wearing masks and to social distancing, you could have some opening up and do it pretty safely because people are going to take their own precautions, right? So people who are really at risk are going to be super careful. The rest of us are going to wear our masks and constantly wash our hands and not get too near each other and try not to make spaces crowded all the kind of metered access that could help. Like, you could imagine that. And Germany is going to do this, right? They're, we're going to watch them. And yet, if we, when we start opening the door to that, it seems like a totally irresponsible set of steps to propose because the politics have gotten so polarized and messed up. So I... I'm frustrated about that because I feel like, of course, we all want the economy to resume. We want people to have jobs and um, and not lose their livelihoods. But we're sort of there is a way in which the political discourse can be so castigating um, when you're instead of realistic about that. At the same time, I'm really struck that the federal government seems to be losing interest in this problem in the last few weeks, as we figure out that it's a disproportionate number of poor people and people of color are dying, that terrifies me. And that makes it feel like it is irresponsible to talk about opening up because it's if we're sacrificing groups of people who are marginalized. Those two competing forces like, have really been on my mind this week. And I just want to tack on one other point, David. You mentioned the reporting this week about the scattershot response to try to kind of make up for the original uh, sluggishness. And there's a quote in the Times piece about this. It's from a, a former deputy administrator at FEMA that says, there's an old saying in emergency management. I wrote Does that quote down too. <laughs> <laughs> there ahead. is an old quote. There is an old saying in emergency management, disaster is the wrong time to exchange business cards. Um, yes. And it's a, it's a great quote because I spent all this time in my book to, uh, interviewing former FEMA people. And you know, obviously, there's been a lot of issues covering disasters over the years, and lots of fixes can be made. But nobody says, make the fixes when the hurricane is smashing down your house. In other words, exchanging business cards when the disaster is there. Yes, that was a great story. That was a great quote in that story about Jared Kushner pointing out that they were trying to do all these kind of deals with people who had no experience and were scammers and ignoring the people who did have experience and were not scammers. The VIP list. Yeah. 
Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. And I want to really ask you to consider doing that if you can. It is only $35 for the first year. I know that times are tough for a lot of folks. And please, if, if this is something that's beyond your budget, you absolutely should not do it. But if it's something you could consider and you get value out of the journalism that Slate does and you get value out of the GabFest, we would ask you to consider doing it. It really helps Slate continue to do great journalism, helps us continue to do this podcast in the way that we hope you like. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member. And today we are going to talk about how to save the summer. Uh, We got some suggestions from you listeners, and we're going to figure out how to make summer not as much of a disaster as it seems like it will be for parents. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. There is a cover story in this coming weekend's New York Times Magazine by Emily Bazelon. Will Americans lose their right to vote in the pandemic? We're going to talk about Emily's fantastic alarming story. So Emily, take it away. What is the premise of this story? Will Americans, in fact, lose their right to vote in the pandemic? I really, really hope not. And while I do think it's important to sound the alarm, because my reporting shows that uh, this is an urgent matter, um, we need to start transitioning to much more vote by mail for the fall and making sure that polling sites remain safe for people who are going to use them. 
it's also true that we do have enough time left to do this. Like, I don't want to have the message be like, this is hopeless. It is not hopeless. It is a roll up your sleeves kind of problem. As Nate personally from the Stanford Healthy Elections Project said to me, like, the boring stuff matters. This is about logistics and getting new systems in place. And it's also about the states having the money to do that. So one of the big looming questions in the piece is whether Congress is going to provide adequate funding. Right now, there's $400 million for election officials to respond to the pandemic. They, the, According to the Brennan Center for Justice, which has done a lot of analysis, they need $3.6 billion more. Unfortunately, this has become a polarized issue in which Democrats are asking for the money and in Washington, Republican officials are resisting. What I found, though, when I started talking to people in the states, the secretaries of state who actually run the elections, there is considerable support for doing all of this properly. And it's bipartisan because these are the people who know they're going to be accountable. And we talked, I think, on the show about the Wisconsin primary, which was just a total fiasco in terms of people losing their right to vote because they didn't prepare in advance, because vote by mail went just absolutely through the roof in terms of previous demand, and they ran out of envelopes, and they couldn't get all the absentee ballots out on time. And then lots of poll workers, many of them older, didn't feel safe staffing the polls. And so in major cities like Milwaukee and smaller ones like Green Bay, there were just a tiny number of polling places open. And we know that there are more than 50 COVID infections that seem to be connected to going to the polls that day in Wisconsin. Nobody wants to be that state or that city that has that kind of disaster, basically, of voting. And so it's time to start ramping up and figuring out how to make it possible to get all the supplies in order and all the folks trained to do a lot more vote by mail. At the same time, we can't just have a total switch because there are going to be a lot of people who don't have stable mailing addresses in the fall, people who move around because of the downturn, people on um, Native American reservations sometimes don't have easy mailing addresses, and there are people with disabilities who need to go to the polls. So it's this dual challenge, and we can do it just like we can fight uh, the, the virus, but it is this big like logistical challenge that the politics are complicating. So. Emily, you said there's $400 million in federal funding. You need $4 billion to do this right. What does that $3.6 billion buy? Is that effectively for vote by mail? And and one of the things that really struck me in the piece were, were your descriptions of some of the obstacles to extending vote by mail too much in such a short time horizon. Yeah. So there are five states in the country that already have systems where they send every registered voter a mail-in ballot. It's Utah, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, Colorado. Then there's some states that have done like 25% or so of the electorate. They, they know how to do this. They just haven't done it to a huge volume. Then there are 27 states where the to date fewer than 10% of voters have ever gotten absentee ballots in an election before. So in Connecticut, for example, you have to have an excuse. It's a pain to do it. We're about to change that. Our Secretary of State said this time she was going to mail a ballot to everybody for the primary and for November. Well, that is a huge ramp up. Like, we've never done it like that before. And so you need special envelopes. You need paper. You have to order them from a vendor. The vendor 
has time still to deliver all of that, but if they're going to have a huge ramp up in production, they need to buy expensive million dollar equipment. And they're not going to make those investments unless they know the orders are coming in. If the states don't have the money to know that they can pay those orders, they're going to be reluctant to place them. Then there are like the scanners and tabulating machines that you need on election day to do the counting. You need to train your poll workers, or not your poll workers, your election officials to know how to verify signatures properly. That's like a whole other challenge. And then meantime, they also need to figure out how to make the polls safe to vote in a time of COVID. So social distancing, hand sanitizer, cleaning supplies, masks, PPE, all the things we know we need in public spaces, we need to get in place for the polling centers that remain open. On your uh, first point, Emily, it's such a a great one. This is why we have collective action, even though the states handle the the voting. When you are faced with a crisis, the the job of somebody in leadership, which in this case is the president, because even though each state deals with the voting, it's a 50-state problem, see an urgent need, which is the voting issue is going to be a problem, particularly if there's a spike that Fauci and everybody else says is coming in the fall. Find a plan to address that need and then execute. So this is, as you as you were saying, this is like finding the vaccine or finding uh, therapeutics or finding testing or more masks or whatever. It's another test in the moment that, um, it, although in this case, as you said, it can there are solutions and there's a like a path to follow and people who've been thinking about this and mobilization that can take place. Um, do you sense, Emily, that anybody uh, other than in the individual states is? Uh, moving at the speed and pace required um, to deal with this? I mean, I think there are definitely hundreds of public interest groups who are really pushing Congress to act and um, pass the funding for this. And there's this an irony here. So vote by mail historically has not provided a partisan advantage to either party. Like when you look at 2016, the same number, the same percentage of Republicans and Democrats voted by mail. Studies have shown that there's no partisan benefit. It's neutral in partisan terms. What it vote by mail does is it has bumped up participation a couple of points in the states that have it. And unfortunately, President Trump has seized on that as a reason to oppose it. So he said on TV when the Democrats started floating these funding proposals that the proposals, quote, had things, levels of voting, that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. Well, if that's your premise, that more people voting means Republicans lose, then you have an interest in fewer people participating. You've, like, come out in favor of voter suppression. And then you are using stymieing the state's effort to properly prepare for the election and increase the volume of voting by mail as, like, one thing that's going to help you get elected. The other fear about all of the way in which Trump has been talking about the election is you're just kind of breeding mistrust by making it sound like the results are going to be illegitimate. There's going to be chaos. The states don't know how to do this. After the Wisconsin primary, a conservative interest group put out this ad about the election, and it has this like weird mixed message in it. It talks about how absentee balloting rose a great deal in Wisconsin, as if that's a bad thing. But then it ends on this picture of nice elderly white people in a sunny room getting help with their absentee ballots and saying, we have to make it safe for people to be able to vote absentee. And <laughs> so I, I just don't 
know what exactly to make of all of this messaging because it suggests that the goal is to kind of destabilize the election while still encouraging typical Republican voters to come out. And I just wish this was not a partisan issue, and it doesn't have to be. There is that uh, political science over time that has shown, and we've talked about this a lot before, that, that has suggested that people, when they feel their vote is threatened, will actually work harder to make sure they vote. And the stories, the amazing stories in Wisconsin of people waiting in lines at the risk of their health for hours and hours to vote. Uh, and then the out- outcome uh, in Wisconsin would, t- would seem to suggest that. I'm not, say- I'm not suggesting you should, should uh, allow that to take place, but in terms of a president and lots of other people who are trying to game out what the outcome will be, it can often backfire on people who think that by trying to constrict voting access, uh, it's going to help your team. Emily, when you think about the various issues around ballot expansion and and voter suppression, if you had to pick the the two or three that were most important, so there's purging the voter rolls, there's voter ID, there's felon disenfranchisement, there's closing polling stations, there's vote by mail, there's same-day registration, there are probably a bunch that I've left out. Which do you think are the ones that really matter the most and that that we should obsess around the most. Yeah, it's funny that you asked that. I looked for a study that tried to compare the effects of those various tactics, and I couldn't find one. What I think from the literature is that making it harder for people to register to vote and stay on the rolls is huge. And so there is a whole part of my piece about purging. And we are seeing hundreds of thousands of voters being, quote, cleansed or cleaned. We see the rolls cleaned up to lose hundreds of thousands of voters. Some of them are inactive. Some of them don't have like exact matches through this very troubled system called cross-check that Chris Kobach, the um, person who's a real disseminator of the myth of widespread voting fraud, the former secretary of state in Kansas, he created the system. Okay, so you have all these people swept off the rolls. This has happened, for example, in Georgia. They don't have same-day registration in Georgia, right? So these things go together. You show up, you think you can vote, you're not on the rolls. You can't just like re-register and cast a ballot. That seems like it could shave off the margins of turnout in a a significant way. And I would say at this point that voter suppression is often about what happens at the margins. And that's true about aspects of voting by mail as well. So big issue. Do you send applications for absentee ballots to every registered voter? Do you send the ballots themselves and just streamline it for people? That's a choice that states make. Do you pay the return postage or do you make people go out and find a stamp? A lot of people, especially young people, like I don't know how many times my kids have ever put a stamp on a letter. That's just like not a thing. They do very much. (laughs) Um, So those are actually burdens for people. And then this whole rabbit hole of signature verification, this is like really looks to me like the hanging chads of the 2020 election because There are states that know how to do it. So I'm interviewing the lovely Secretary of State in Washington, Kim Wyman. She's explaining to me, like, we have the police who investigate fraud come in and train our election workers about how to verify signatures. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Those are the people who know how to do it. And then she said this interesting thing, that once you have the training, you actually are more confident in signatures that are not identical because you realize that there's, like, a way in which people hold the pen and make marks and it doesn't have to look the same every time to 
actually be a signature match. So you have a lower rate of rejecting signatures. If you don't have that kind of training or you are being in other ways, like just sort of rejecting of signatures, 2% of rejecting absentee ballot signatures in an election where lots of people vote by mail, that's thousands of voters, thousands of votes that you're tossing out. And then the other point that um, Secretary of State Wyman made to me is you better have a canvassing board that's doing that in public view where everyone can see how these ballots are being treated because otherwise people worry about some kind of partisan effect in which ballots are being tossed and which aren't, especially because there's research showing that young people and sometimes people of color have their ballots rejected at a higher rate. There are just all these questions of fairness that come up here. And it's the cumulative effect at this point of voter suppression. There's an interesting lawsuit that Fair Fight Action, this voting rights group that Stacey Abrams, the former um, candidate for governor in Georgia, she started this group and they brought a lawsuit in Georgia and they said, look at all these different tactics. It's the ones I've already talked about. It's also closing a lot of polls, especially in cities where black people vote. It's all these little bites at the apple and the shift that we need for preparing for the pandemic just like augments various possibilities. Emily, one thing which I think you you nodded at, you you could have sniffed at in your piece, but I would be interested in hearing you talk about here is what are is there a possibility that if the pandemic is raging in November that states could actually cancel the election and have their legislature uh, declare winners, especially in the presidential vote race? Yeah, this is the sort of nightmare for democracy scenario that I think I first heard about from Mark Joseph Stern at Slate. He wrote a piece a while ago pointing out that the Constitution still gives the power to state legislators to choose the electors who actually make the votes in the Electoral College that choose the president. Now, the states turned that power over to the voters in the 19th century, and they haven't talked about getting it back. That would be incredibly anti-democratic. But when you look at the Constitution, they return that power. And so the notion that you could use the pandemic as an excuse to try to effectively like cancel democracy on Election Day, it's kind of hovering out there. But that that's for the presidential vote. There's also votes for House, Senate, state legislature. Can they do it? State legislatures can't simply trump every single one of these elections. They can't say we're going to we're going to not count the presidential vote and just select electors, but we're still going to have a vote for Congress. I think that's right. I have some concern, like some question about the Senate, but didn't there isn't there an actual constitutional amendment about how we elect the senators? Like at first, the Senate was also chosen through electors, but I think that we got rid of that, right? So I think yes, you're correct. We did. And yes, we did. Thank you, John Dickerson, for actually <laughs> knowing something about the Constitution this morning. Um, another kind of potential, really problematic development is what happens in cities that are democratic strongholds that have been hit by COVID and you have a lot of fear of COVID. If you don't really work hard to protect the vote in cities like Milwaukee, where we just saw what happened otherwise, in Philadelphia, in Detroit, you could really have swing states affected by turnout because you have made it hard to vote. And those three states that I named have divided government. They have Democratic governors and Republican-controlled legislatures. And that dynamic caused a lot of trouble in Wisconsin in April. Then also you have the potential of throwing the election or some of these contests to the courts. And 
you know, we also saw the courts divide along ideological lines in the Wisconsin cases in a way that is quite distressing and, and gives me sort of chills of thinking back to Bush versus Gore. All right. Read Emily's cover story in The New York Times Magazine this Sunday. Will Americans lose their right to vote in the pandemic? Gene Sperling joins us from Santa Monica, California. Gene was the national economic advisor to Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He has a new book out, Economic Dignity. It is extremely timely. Gene, welcome to the GabFest. It's great to see you. I hope you're healthy, healthy and safe. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. Start with your book. What is Economic Dignity? Why is it important to think about now in the moment of the greatest economic catastrophe of our lifetime? Yeah, I mean, for me, as someone who'd been doing policy for 20 or 30 years, I just felt it was incredibly important for us to remember that our ultimate goal is not a GDP number or a metric. It's about, you know, what is our aspiration for, our, you know, our fellow American. And for me, I defined economic dignity uh, as requiring three pillars, the capacity to not only care for family, but to be there for the most precious moments of life with your loved ones, to be able to pursue your purpose and potential, and finally, to be able to contribute economically without domination or humiliation. And, uh, you know, I wanted this to, to define this as what should be the North Star for people in economic policy, that it was helpful to remember this when you're lost in all the political and metric debates. But I think what really makes this our kind of moment of truth on economic dignity really goes to Martin Luther King's speech that he gives in 1968, March 18th, at the Memphis Sanitation Worker Strike, where he says his famous line that all labor has dignity. But the line that leads up to it, he says, we will come as a nation to learn that the sanitation worker and the physician are both essential to our well-being. And how do we justify that the people we are relying on who have this value, we actually treat quite terribly. Uh, they get very low pay, uh, and it goes on beyond the pay. I mean, how is it right as a nation that less than one of, the, of 10 people who care for people's children as they're living cannot take a paid week off one week off with their own family. How can it be that half of the people who are home and nursing aides do not have a single day of sick leave? And so I do think what makes this the moment is, are we going to just respond with applause and pats on the back? Or are we going to actually put forward the type of essential workers' bill of rights that I think Elizabeth Warren and Ro Kahana are talking about? And then most importantly, will this be a moment of reflection where we say to ourselves, the people who care for our loved ones, uh, they are essential. This is real. And is this going to affect our long-term compact? So one of the um, points you make that resonated with me is the idea that economic dignity has served as a mediating force in our nation's historic tension between collective justice and untamed individualism. I'm quoting you there just so we know I'm not plagiarizing. <laughs> um, so... Um, 
when you write about that, you also go on to talk about some of the key decisions the Supreme Court has made in the past that have recognized that when a group has weak bargaining power, they need more protection from the government, that there's a way in which the government is always making economic choices and how it structures the market and how it treats workers and, and requires private employers to treat workers. Unions have historically been a bigger force and part of that picture in American history and in other countries than they are right now. Do you see labor as essential to economic dignity? And when you talk about a workers' bill of rights, what place do you see for unions in that? I think it is absolutely essential. And you know, as the country starts out in our first hundred years or so, we kind of are we're based on this principle that the government, particularly in the criminal justice sense, cannot impinge on your dignity. You have certain rights, at least as long as you are a white male. None of this is obviously applied to African Americans or women, but it stands as an ideal. And as you get into the Teddy Roosevelt area, people say, well, what is this value of individual dignity or sphere of dignity? What, what worth is it if my employer can completely dominate me? Teddy Roosevelt, is his whole view changes not by some philosophy, but because he does nighttime tours as the New York police commissioner or state assemblyman, and he sees these horrible, degrading situations. And it is this sense of loss of dignity that makes him say, we need more government regulation. And he becomes a very pro-union president. And Justice Ginsburg says this in a dissent beautifully just in the last couple of years, that an individual worker will never have the power to demand their dignity if it's they alone versus their company or their industry. They'll be like the, the, the Tiananmen Square man. And that the capacity to bond together is really the only way that workers have the capacity, not just to get more wages and benefits, but to be able to say, you cannot treat me like that. And I think we're seeing that right now today where the people we applaud are facing retaliation at Instacart, at Amazon, at Trader Joe's for standing up for PPE and a little extra hazard pay in the middle of a pandemic. Let's imagine somebody believed with everything in the case you're making. It took the depression to get FDR to totally rewrite the social contract that existed beforehand. So you had a country that was, you know, on its knees. And so in 1936, he can change the way the country thinks of itself and says, you know, the measure is not giving much to those who already have much, but the, but whether we provide enough for those who have too little. It's kind of, you have to change the source code of the country before they can then accept the various things that you're suggesting. Where would you start in uh, in this moment, well, I think you would build up, build off this essential workers moment because I do feel this is a. I mean, it's sad that it takes this. You know, it's sad that uh, you know, for myself, many other Americans right now who may be dealing with a parent who's near the end of life. You know, the caregivers there they're they're among the most important people in your lives. And I think that the case for universal health care and universal paid sick leave has been made stronger by this uh, recession, by this jobs depression than anything we've ever seen. And by the way, not just on a moral basis, but really on a self-interest basis, because people going to work sick, going out sick is a threat to everyone. So in some sense, it's made it more tangible from 
a self-interested basis and hopefully from a moral and spiritual basis. Actually, Gene, let me follow up on that because you were a person who worked in politics. You worked in getting policy made real when you were in the White House. At the moment, we're probably going to need another edition of the CARES Act before the election. I think Republicans certainly do not want the economy to be in absolutely terrible shape before the election. They are eager to have some kind of change. Whereas if a Democrat ends up winning the White House in November, you can imagine that there will be significant opposition, as we saw during the Obama years, to any big policy changes that a Democratic president might want to make. So it feels to me like this is a moment before the election when Democrats have a chance to lock in certain things that will last beyond this immediate crisis. A, do you agree with that? B, if so, what should they try to lock in in the next few months before the election? Well, look, the fact that right now we have an unemployment benefit that goes to gig workers, part-time workers, all the people who've normally been shut out, and that we're recognizing that providing 40% of your wages really isn't very helpful. That does lead to some of the battle lines. I do believe Democrats rightly want to move more towards 100% or 90% or 80% wage replacement in a deep recession. And yes, I think people want that to be long-term structural reform. And I think you're going to see a big fight right now about whether that kind of bonus, stronger unemployment is extended automatically as long as the unemployment numbers are high. I think once you do certain things, just like when you got rid of being able to discriminate on pre-existing conditions, once you see a different world, it can be hard to turn back. And I think that that is the subtext of some of the battles that you are going to be seeing uh, in the next you know, CARES Act. So the job numbers or the joblessness numbers are out this morning. There are another 3.2 million people on the unemployment rolls. And there are states that now have a 25% unemployment rate, which is just staggering. One of the things you write about is the idea of jobs that I think are in the public sector that would really help rebuild our country. And we've had huge needs along these lines before the pandemic. Now we have a crisis that really could employ a lot of people to help address it. But we also have state and local governments that are just having a terrible time covering their expenses right now. And again, a polarized debate in Washington about what to do about that. Um, I mean, is this another issue in which it's all about what happens in November? Or do you see ways of addressing these issues in the shorter term? There's no question a lot of it's going to be about what happens in November, or at least the possibility for major change. But what I wanted to say was, when we have losses of jobs or declines in some areas, don't say, oh, let's just give out a UBI check or there's nothing we can do. We can build a better society going forward. I'll give you just one example. It is a scandal in our country that there are so many parents, I mean, real heroes. They are heroes in how they advocate for their child with a physical disability or autism. And we basically say, you're on your own. We could use hundreds of thousands of more direct service professionals and then pay them well so they want to stay, so they can get skills, so they can have career mobility. We're, com- we're starting to come to grips with the fact that not all the jobs are going to come back. Some of that is because of the terribly slow response we've had on testing and treatment and tracing 
and, and all the things that aggravate all of us. But some of it is, to be quite honest, that something like this accelerates job changes that might have been going to happen anyways. Some of it's going to be that people are never going to go back to the level of international business travel. And I think we could use jobs that will be building a green, sustainable future, jobs that are dignified but are serving a national purpose. So, Gene, when you, I, I want to ask you a slightly different question about the nature of the global finance economy. Um, in the two administrations you worked in and now the way things are, um, do, you, do you feel like uh, this is the basically the big economy that hovers over all these people whose dignity you're trying to elevate and protect? As a response to international financial shocks of the kind we had in 2007 to 2009 that we've had because of Greece, Mexican peso bailout that you were a part of, is the economy moving at a faster rate and therefore requires a different way to think about sort of firefighting that goes on inside an administration? Because what ends up happening is these shocks happen, emergency measures come in. And the people who get taken care of are not often the kinds of people you're talking about. You know, they're the people whose whose interests are the, the biggest at stake. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the economic landscape looks at from international finance, from an international finance standpoint, as we think about those big moving pieces and how they crash against the people you're talking about. Right. No, I, I appreciate that. So let me say one thing that's kind of interesting about this terrible period we're going through. It is the job loss, as Emily said, is, is so deep and dramatic depression level. And yet it's not quite as complex as what we've dealt with before. I mean, virtually everybody can understand uh, what is happening now. People are having to freeze their economies because of a pandemic. This is not, you know, understanding how a Lehman shock went through the system and what will prevent another one. So in some sense, as deep as it is, it's something that we can see easier and direct. You know, we really do need to have stronger government services. Right now, we are relying on state unemployment offices that we've never invested in, that we've never thought were important, that we've never modernized. Uh, and we are relying on banks that are, you know, we, I do believe the president should have gotten Defense Production Authority and ordered banks to give out loans uh, uh, fairly. So what we've seen is that even when some, there is a decent idea, the transmission we're so dependent either on someone in the private sector who's either not able to do it or is going to do it unfairly or a government service that we've ignored up till we needed it. So I think that what I would hope this would say is let's ask ourselves, you know, whether it's a financial crisis or a pandemic, how do we keep people whole? How do we protect their dignity by keeping them in their homes, by giving them a paycheck that's close to 100%? And how do we prepare ourselves so we at least have the capacity for these responses? Because what you're seeing is a lot of things being screwed up, costing perhaps millions of small businesses their ability to survive, millions of people their job, just because we are not set up to execute during a crisis. Gene Sperling, his new book is Economic Dignity. Gene, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you, David. Thank you, John. Thank you, Emily. It was really honored to be on. Let's go to cocktail chatter. I had some very festive uh, margaritas this week. So that would definitely be 
the cocktail I would be chattering about for Cinco de Mayo, now that we're at Sieto de Mayo or Ocho de Mayo, whenever you're listening. Emily, what are you going to be drinking slash chattering about? I have a serious chatter and hopefully a lighter one. So we didn't talk earlier about the post office and how important that is going to be in an election that relies on voting by mail. Um, If that happens, the Postal Service really turns into our sort of de facto election administrator. There's a big fight going on over funding the post office, which warns that it is poised to run out of money at the end of September. And President Trump has appointed to be the new postmaster general a top donor to his own campaigns and the Republican National Committee. His name is Louis DeJoy. He's a North Carolina businessman who's currently in charge of fundraising for the RNC in Charlotte. Um, Hopefully he'll do a great job, but there is something a little disconcerting about appointing a political ally as opposed to a career professional to head this important agency right now. Trump, of course, has been railing for a long time about the rates that the post office charges to Amazon and other um, companies that send a lot of packages through the mail. The problem, of course, with jacking up those prices is that it would send companies like Amazon, presumably, to places like UPS, further decimating the um, business that the post office relies on. The post office already has lost a lot of that business to UPS and FedEx and other services. So that's one to watch. And on a lighter note, the Supreme Court had its first teleconferencing arguments this week, and I was on a great podcast that's a SCOTUS-watching show called Strict Scrutiny with Melissa Murray and Kate Shaw, two of my favorite law professors. And one of them, I think Melissa, this was before arguments, said, mark my words, some person on this call is going to forget to use the mute function and do something embarrassing. And lo and behold, on Wednesday afternoon in the middle of argument, there is a brief moment where you can hear a toilet flush in the background. I feel so badly for the lawyer talking because his face and um, name have gone out with this audio on the internet, which is, of course, being endlessly laughed over. But of course, he wasn't the one who flushed the toilet. He was talking. He was concentrating. It's surely someone in the background, perhaps even one of the justices who did such a thing. I'm glad we will never know the person's identity. That's just too much humiliation for any one mortal. And I hope this serves as a warning for um, future use of the mute function during Supreme Court arguments. I, I just I just want to stand up for that, whoever it was. Like, I, so what? There's, there's a toilet flushing. Like, like, do justices not take a dump? Apparently. Do justices not piss? I mean, do lawyers... It's... <laughs> It's ridiculous. I think it was. Yes. It, you wasn't think it's it Shakespeare fine to do that? In the, that? Like, don't you think it would be embarrassing if if one of us I'm was sure. using the toilet during this show? We would cut that footage. Like, we don't want to know certain no. things. Uh, yeah, but if if my child, if if someone who who's using a bathroom in my house flushes a toilet behind me, I don't. Who cares? Mm. Like, what's the big deal? Well, look, I think you're conceiving this. All- you're totally misconceiving this. I think that the application of creative and new ways to <laughs> sneer at a lawyer's <laughs> argument, uh, is that the use of the flushing sound to um, undermine his case is perfectly fine. Who's who's satisfied with a simple eye roll or a snort? I think getting, I yeah, mean, ch- the chief perhaps justice could play when he doesn't like next. an argument. He could just play um, a flushing sound. <laughs> exactly. Or, yeah, the sad trombone would also be available. John, what's your um, chatter? 
mine is two. One is an episode of The Daily in which Caitlin Dickerson talks to a Sudanese refugee um, who uh, worked at the Smithfield plant and her description of her travels to America, what she wants out of life in America, uh, why she endures uh, the hardships in her life and then her experience with COVID-19 are basically one of the most compelling articulations of the American dream that I've heard in a long time. It's beautifully put together. And so congratulations to Caitlin and the Daily. It's really wonderful. You should go listen to it. Caitlin is, is Caitlin no relation. I no relation. No relation. No, we'd gladly claim. <laughs> but super awesome. No, we'd gladly claim her <laughs> as, a, as a relation, uh, though she might be you embarrassed should. by the association with, uh, with our wing of the Dickerson family. Um, and then the oh, second no, thing. You're all equal to each other. <laughs> She's very lovely. Uh, the second is that I'm sure everybody heard about the murder hornets, which have this devastating way that they decapitate bees. But this week, I was heartened to learn that bees have an evolutionary advantage that they deploy uh, in order to um, thwart these murder hornets, which is to basically smother them. Bees can tolerate, according to one report on BBC, two degrees higher uh, temperature, body temperature before they collapse. And they use this, basically they smother the hornets and flap their wings. I guess they really beat their wings. Flap suggests that they're bigger than they are. And they create basically a sauna that kills the hornet and keeps the hornet from ravaging uh, their hive. So anyway, they, they, they're fighting back. And uh, I think that's a, an important, um, but, David. But only the Japanese, only the Japanese bees have learned how to do well, that. American bees don't well, know how to do that. Well, that's true. They don't know exactly how to do it yet. But apparently there have been a lot of Reddit threads. And I think they're going to be getting on it soon. The, the, the bees are reading Reddit. They're sharing the bees, a lot of stuff yes, on Reddit. The bees have their own Reddit threads. Buzz it. Th- buzz it. The bee yes, Reddit. Apiary Reddit. News, as it yes. Were. If you just keep repeating those words, David, it's going to become like it's going to take off. Buzz you it. just say buzz okay. it a bunch of times. There we go. That'll do it. Uh, I, I'm, I'll, <laughs> since you guys are doing two chatters, I'll do two chatters because um, why not? Uh, so I wrote in my newsletter, read.bi slash plots, if you want to get that daily newsletter from me and Henry Blodgett, uh, about this amazing thing that Washingtonian Magazine here in D.C. excavated, which is that back in 1991, Sally Quinn, who's a uh, journalist, former Washington Post journalist and and Washington Society uh, leader, wrote a novel called Happy Endings, and it was a best-selling novel. It was sort of a soft core novel. It wasn't it wasn't exactly erotic, Romance. but it had erotic qualities to it. And the hero of that novel it was named Michael Lansner, was modeled on Tony Fauci because she had met Fauci at a Washington dinner party, of course, and she had found him brilliant and compassionate and kind and decent and honest and sexy. And, so and she wrote, charismatic, which just seems like only in Washington. I'm sorry. Uh, I think Tony Fauci's charismatic. What do you mean? He's intellectually charismatic. Uh, and anyway, the Michael Lansner character wins the heart of a former first lady, a beautiful former first lady, which does make you start to think, well, what if Tony Fauci and Michelle Obama had had a thing that would be great anyway th- i love the idea that tony fauci was the hero of an erotic the erotic hero of a best-selling novel back in the 90s that's my first my second chatter which i wasn't going to chatter about but now i'm just so irate that i'm going to chatter about it the school that is john's alma mater but i do not hold john responsible 
John Dickerson went to Sidwell Friends, which was the rival school to me. Sidwell Friends is a one of the preeminent private schools here in Washington, D.C. It is famous. The Obama children went there. Uh, Chelsea Clinton went there. It is an extremely rich school. It has a gold-plated campus. Uh, has spent tens... None of which was true when I went Tens there. or possibly hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> in way. recent years to make build new buildings. The gym there is the most ridiculous high school gym you'll ever see. It is just absurd how nice it is. Anyway, turns out Sidwell Friends just received $5 million of taxpayer money as part of the PPP program. Now, they have every right to apply for it. They There's nothing in the program that said Sidwell Friends couldn't get it. And they got a good banker and they got in line in front and they got their money and they are taking it. They're not giving it back, even though a bunch of other institutions that have been called out uh, are giving the money back. There are other institutions that got PPP money, which are which are well or well off institutions. I just find it particularly disgusting that a school which is so rich that has so many rich parents is unable to say we're going to you know we're going to rein it we're going to tighten our belt a little bit the students aren't going to get quite as good an education for the next few years uh, we're not going to we're not going to make our new building out of titanium the way we plan to it's just going to have to be made out of platinum it really disgusts me like that's our federal money. That's money that could be going to so many other better causes. And it's really gone to basically what I think of as maybe being the worst cause there is a private school for a very small number of kids that already has way more money than it should have. Bring it, bring it all. You said, well, alums, I, I want to hear why I'm wrong about that. Listen, I'm not sure that you're going to get a lot of alums <laughs> uh, rushing to their defense. Um, yeah. I haven't looked to see whether my alma mater, St. Albans School, took money. It's entirely possible that St. Albans so did take money. What's so amazing Which, is that the when same we thing went, would apply we to them to, times two. Uh, what we, when we went to school, all of the things that you said about Sidwell applied to St. Albans, and everybody smugly oh, yeah. enjoyed the fact that our gym was like had no yeah. bleachers, our track was too short. Like it was totally stunted growth, and now it's, and now the description that you say, you know, there's nothing you said that uh, well, that didn't fit the opulence well, of the school. If you look, sorry, I'm going to get off this in one second, but if you look at D.C. private schools over the last 15 or 20 years, they've spent on the order of a billion dollars to upgrade their facilities. These are schools that serve handfuls of kids. School, you know, serve a couple thousand kids a year are served by these schools. And it, the amount of, of private money that has flown into them to make them opulent and over the top and so cushioned and glorious is obscene and i and to to my alma mater st albans got a ton of it uh your school sidwell friends um and plenty of other schools too but it's it's a it's really disturbing it's private opulence and public squalor as as john kenneth galbraith put it listeners you sent us great chatters again this week please do keep them coming Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest. And our great listener chatter, it actually came from a couple of different listeners. One is Dave Campbell, at Dave Campbell 116. And it's a, uh, a Twitter thread um, about how back in the Irish famine in the 1840s, the Choctaw and Navajo nations, but I think in particular the Choctaw nation, raised some money to support victims of the Irish famine and sent it to Ireland. 
and uh, it was $150 in 1847, which is, you know, real money to go help people who lived a world away from you. And it just came out that the Choctaw nation, the Choctaw tribe is suffering in the pandemic, as so many people are, but it particularly is hitting uh, poor parts of the country and I think hitting Indian reservations very hard. And there's been a huge outpouring of Irish donations to this Choctaw tribe. So $1.8 million has come from the Irish to the Choctaw tribe, which had given them support back in the 1840s. So thanks to Dave Campbell for sending that to us. That is our show for today. Please subscribe to the GabFest. If you liked what you heard, you can get new episodes the minute we publish them. You can subscribe on whatever app you're listening to us on now. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. We engineered ourselves. Gabriel Roth is editorial director and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thank you so much for listening. We really look forward to talking to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So we asked a few weeks ago for you to help us try to figure out ways to save the summer. So school, and I'm using school loosely, the the vague simulacrum of school that my children and probably your children, if you have children, have been going through is coming to an end. Here in D.C., they wrapped up, they decided, D.C. public schools decided we're going to wrap up school three weeks early. So at the end of May, my my kid who's in sixth grade is going to be done with his school. And so what these people who are running schools, who've done a very fine job under very difficult circumstances, keeping things going, didn't talk about is that we now have a whole summer where all <laughs> the usual tools that we would deploy, friends, camps, jobs at the mall, they are unavailable to us. I don't think we know that yet. You're giving up. Okay, too they quickly. may be unavailable to us. They're certainly. It's not. Yeah. It's certainly not going to be. It's not going to be the same kind of summer. They're, I don't think public pools are going to be open, Emily. Let me put it that way. Yeah. No, I'm not saying it's not going to be different. I am just not willing to give uh, up on all of it yet. And I do. I think we could safely have some okay. of it. So I'm just okay. going to stake out, out that territory, stake and I'll defend it, it later. And uh, and so this is, summer is going to be incredibly difficult, especially if some parents are starting to have to go back to work and we already have a situation there was an absolutely grim story in the paper yesterday that one-fifth of american kids are not getting enough to eat so you compound this lack of activity this lack of options with the just the actual suffering that people are going through physical suffering that people are enduring and it's a pretty terrible combination so how can we save the summer? We asked you for some ideas. You sent us some, but interested, John and Emily, your ideas for saving the summer. So, obviously, we need to continue to think about um, trying to contain the threat of the virus. It is also true that I think there are ways for kids to do a lot of outdoor activities that are safe. And my North Star in this at the moment is the economist Emily Oster. She is very upfront about how she is incredibly eager for camp to open and for kids to be able to resume as many of their activities as are safely possible. And so she did a really thorough and 
it seemed to me, even-handed read of the research so far this week. We'll make sure to post this blog post. I've been, like, clutching it to my heart. Um, And it's a lot better, I think, than a lot of the news coverage, which tends to be about, like, one scary study as opposed to looking at all the research. And what Emily Oster is concluding is that There is still a risk of contagion through the kids to adults, but the kids themselves, it's becoming clearer and clearer, are at relatively low risk. And it even seems like the risk of infection through them, while it's not zero, is not all that high. And so when you start thinking about how camps actually work and how much they could rely on other young people, like people in their teens and 20s, to be interacting with the kids, I actually feel like you can make an argument this is the best thing we could do with kids this summer. And yes, we're going to have to think about how to protect the older adults that who transport the kids back and forth or who direct the camps. But it does seem to me like with some social distancing, we could figure this out. And, you know, Camp is a tricky subject in America because not everybody gets to go to camp. We don't have public camps the way we have public school. And so I don't want to be exacerbating the inequalities that have been so horrifying with this virus. I do feel, though, that the more we have camp, the more we really should make it a priority for the kids who don't have enough to eat to be able to get to places where they can get fed and nourishment um, and where they're interacting. One of the things that has been tormenting me is that in New Haven, my city, and in a lot of cities here, 10% of kids just never checked in with their schools at all after COVID started. Like, they're just gone. They're probably, like, really stuck inside. And we are going to be hearing sad stories about what happened to them and the ramifications for a long time. So figuring out how to make summer something where kids have access to outdoor activities, because we know the outdoors is safer, I really feel like this should be a national priority. Yeah. I I would just, I read the (laughs) Emily Oster stuff too, and I was very excited by it, Emily. I just want to, like, we we have, we don't want to make them, Emily Oster is not an epidemiologist. She's an economist. And. Yeah, yeah. I said that. True. There is a wish fulfillment quality of a lot about a lot of this stuff. And I just don't, I I want us to not um, believe that because we want to believe it. I would like, I would like the epidemiologist to come and tell me, Oh yes, this is, this is safe. Um, The evidence she cited was very persuasive and I was glad that she did it, but, but I don't know that the case is closed there. Yeah. And you'd have to get the lawyers to work out the indemnification for the camps, which are barely, you know, which have very tight budgets anyway, to make sure that whatever decision they they make about opening up, they don't get dinged at the back end if something goes wrong. Um, yes, that is all true. But camp is opt-in. So, you know, you can take care of that with waivers and contracts. Right, right, right. But somebody's got to get in there and write them. Um, I also wonder really... I don't know. I don't know. I've I, I don't have any. I mean, because you got to get them there, which is its own problem. And then the ten percent of the kids you're talking about, I mean, they're not going to be going to camp. The ones who didn't even check in with their schools. I mean, that's about reaching into homes that are that 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 are the kind of toughest to crack. Um, Right, but we should be doing that. And I mean, there are cities, like my city does have summer programs, absolutely, for poor kids who are hard to reach. And like, either those summer programs are going to operate or I mean, there is this, sorry to interrupt. I mean, I think there's this way, Emily, and I think, I feel like you are such a good advocate of this, which is 
it is always easier in a situation like this to say, oh, it's only safe. It is safe. You know, we have to be very safe. And safety means, you know, precautionarily, not opening schools, not opening camps, you know, closing this, closing that. And and because it is safer, it's, you know, you you, you people are not going to get the disease if they are not at the pool. They will not catch the disease at the pool because they can't go to the pool. But it is there's a huge opportunity cost. And I think what you're rightly identifying here, Emily, is that with kids, the opportunity cost is enormous and the risks may be lower. And so, like, let's try to find a way to... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.